0: Philippians 1, verse 6. If you're able to, one more time, I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me read it one more time. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. Today, I want to start in reverse from typically how I um, orchestrate these sermons, at least for the past several weeks and a couple of months, That is, I want to begin by reading together the Baptist Faith and Message's statement on God's purpose of grace. And this is, again, what the Baptist Faith and Message says about God's purpose of grace. So, If you will, and if you'd like, please read this with me out loud. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. All true believers endure to the end those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by His Spirit will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves." yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. So this morning, we're diving into the doctrinal depths for a bit, because today we're considering two very big and, frankly, quite contentious doctrines, and that is the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So two Ps for you, predestination, perseverance of the saints though it a little weird to you, it's quite simple really. God chose us and God will keep us. Okay, if you are a Christian, if you are faithfully and actively following Jesus, my message to you is quite simple. God chose you and he will keep you. God chose you, he will keep you. Now those two doctrines are slightly distinct. They have their own nuances, but they are actually inseparable and they are very intertwined together in that perseverance, or God keeping you, holding on to you, is really an outworking of God's prior work of choosing you and of first bringing you into his family. I like to think of it that uh, predestination and the perseverance of the saints, that they are like twin turbines that uphold a plane in the air. They they go together. Concerning predestination, J.I. Packer, who's a Canadian theologian, he said, The doctrine of election, like every truth about God, involves mystery and sometimes stirs controversy. And that is certainly true of these two doctrines this morning. There's a lot of mystery involved in them, yet at the same time, God does speak, God is clear, and at the same time, these two doctrines stir quite a bit of controversy amongst Christians across the globe. So this morning, again, my message is simple. God chose you. He will keep you. And to walk through it, I want to look at election or God choosing you. Secondly, I want to look at perseverance or God keeping you. And then lastly, conclude with some practicalities and maybe hopefully address some of the questions that you might have about these two. Um, quite some, they're quite something in terms of the, the controversy they stir up. So first, firstly and foremostly, God chose you. The doctrine of election. If that sounds a little weird, or you might initially revolt against that right at the outset, when I say, sorry, if you're a Christian, I say God chose you. If for some reason you don't like that initially, you know, the frank reality is election is all throughout the Bible. You cannot escape it when you read God's Word. It's unquestionable. God chooses whom He will save, He chooses his people. We see that in the very first chapters of Jeremiah, Malachi, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, and all of those books of the Bible, the very doctrine of election comes up, where there's phrases such as, God chose you, I'm writing to the chosen ones, and there there are explicitly clear statements. John 15 verse 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, Colossians three verse twelve. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And you might be saying, "All right, well, that's just a, a New Testament type of thing." Well, no. Think about the book of Genesis yet again, right? I bring up Genesis every time I've been preaching through these uh, statements of faith. What happened in the book of Genesis? Out of all the nations, all the peoples in the world, whom did God choose as the forefather of the faith? He chose Abraham out of all the people on earth. And then you look at the successive generations. Between Isaac and Ishmael, God chose Isaac. Between Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob. So on and so forth. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. God chooses whom he will save. That's unquestionable. You cannot doubt that. If you are a Christian and if you believe God's word, the controversy comes when you pick that question apart. How does God choose? On what basis does he choose? When did God choose? How firm is his choice? That's where you get into some controversy and differing opinions here. Okay? Now, as you know, fully aware, right? This is a 30 ish minute sermon. I can only do so much, all right? But I'm going to try my best to help give you some things to think about and hold on to primarily from what God says about this doctrine. Okay, so here's a few components of what God's election is, to how to understand it biblically from a few key texts. Number one, this is not too controversial, perhaps in our group today. God chose you not because of your good works. God chooses you not because of your good works or because you deserved it because you were worthy, because you, had a, you merited it. Where do we see that? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-9. to nine. He, God Almighty, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's explicitly clear. He has saved us. And called us to a holy life, not because of anything you've done, but solely on his own purpose and grace. We see the same truth in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very familiar text. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast in themselves. God chooses you, not because of your good works. Here's a slightly contentious one for you. Number two, God chooses you or God chose you in the past not because he sees into the future, okay? God chose you not because he sees into the future. What do I mean by that? When it comes to election, predestination, and God's foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? It's knowing beforehand, right? Prior knowledge. God knowing what's going to happen, right? To state it right at the outset, does God know the future? Absolutely, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. Let me explain. But when we think about election, predestination, foreknowledge, I think it's easier or maybe common for us to think about God's work, choosing, through the lens of the tunnel of time. You may have heard this before. What do I mean by that? So that is, God created everything, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates everything. God is now in heaven, looking down upon the universe, and also looking ahead into the future to see how things are going to play out. He sets it all up, in a sense, and then also, in a sense, he passively sits back and kind of just lets it play out. What's going to happen? Let's just see how things unfold. For example, you get a little more concrete, God creates Bob. God looks into the future. Let's say Bob is born in February of 2024. God looks into the future and sees, you know what, I see that Bob is going to come to know Jesus. He's going to come to the church. He's going to respond to the gospel message in 20 years from 2024. So 2044, yeah, right? Yeah. So Bob is going to respond to the gospel in 2044. That's wonderful. I'm I'm glad he's going to choose me. So so because of that, because I see what's going to happen, how things are going to play out, I'm going to orchestrate all of life so that that actually does happen, so that that possibility becomes certain. Is that what God means when it comes to foreknowledge in the Bible? That might be how you think of it, but is that how God's Word portrays this doctrine? To give you an answer, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This is one of those books where election is right. Seen right at the outset. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. So Peter is the author, the, the human author. God is the divine author, of course, working through Peter. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, to God's chosen people, to God's chosen believers, chosen Christians, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Look at verse 2 right there. To God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The elect, the chosen, have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So then that brings up the question, what does foreknowledge mean? Well, the Greek word there, foreknowledge, is prognosis. That's, we use that word in English, right? Prognosis, gnosis is knowledge. So, and then pro, right? the prior, foreknowledge. To get an idea of what Peter means by that word, look at verse 20. Because Peter uses the same word there in the Greek text. In verse 20, the same chapter, Peter says, He, referring to Jesus Christ, Jesus was chosen or foreknown, or foreordained. The Greek word there is prognosmenu." You hear the similarity. Prognosis, prognosmanou. The same word there, except here it's in the verbal form. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. You catch that? All right, I'm going to explain it. What, 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 what am I trying to point out? Jesus was chosen was foreknown, foreordained before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. was revealed in these last times for your sake. What do I bring this up? The Father, when it comes to Jesus, he did not simply look into the future and see, you know what? I'm going to send my son into the earth around, you know, zero uh, A.D. or B.C. I don't know what the, the actual year is. I'm going to send my son into the earth, you know, around zero. And you know what? As I see 30-ish years after that, I see that the Jewish people are going to put my son to death. Hmm. Well, if that's what happens, that's what's going to happen. So let me just orchestrate everything, because that's what man freely chose to do, and, and this is true. So because that's what's going to play out, the father is saying, I'm going to orchestrate everything so that it happens like that. Is that how the Father sent Jesus into the world, as a passive spectator? It's a rhetorical question. Hopefully it's an easy answer for you. No, that is not at all how God did it. You don't believe me? Acts 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God had planned this from all of eternity sovereignly orchestrated that this was going to happen, that this is how things would play out, not as a passive spectator, but as an active participant and orchestrator of every single event in human history. If that is how meticulously involved God is with Jesus, why would we think differently when it comes to people? Why would we think differently? Where do we get that thinking from? You see, when God chooses us, This leads us to our third point. When God chooses Christians, he does so how? On what basis? According to his sovereign will. Why does God choose you? How does he choose you? According to his divine, sovereign, good, mysterious will. Ephesians chapter one, turn there with me, so you can see it with your own eyes. just know, right, this whole talk talk about choosing, I'm going to address a little bit about free will and and all that kind of stuff at the end. But God chooses you out of his mysterious good, sovereign pleasure and divine will. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I just want to highlight a few phrases here for you. Okay. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Look at verse 4. For He, the Father, He chose us in Him, in Christ. The Father chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. And then look here. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Here's a key phrase. In accordance with His pleasure and will. You fast forward a little bit, and then in the text we see in accordance with the riches of God's grace that lavished on us. We see that in verse 7 in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, fast forward a little bit, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Fast forward a little bit, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It can't be any clearer than in this chapter. God chose you because of his sovereign, divine pleasure and will. Second Timothy one eight to nine, I read that earlier. It says the same thing. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything you have done, but how? On what basis? Because of his own purpose and grace. God chose you. Not because of your good works, not because he can merely predict the future. God chose you out of his divine sovereign pleasure. Okay? That's clear, absolutely clear in God's word. Number two, he'll keep you. God chose you, he'll keep you. This is from Philippians 1.6 and a few other places. Philippians 1.6, we read this morning. Being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God takes the initiative, he chooses you, God holds on to you and helps you to persevere through life. Romans 8 also, turn there if you will. Romans 8, this is a, another key text for you, right? And I, and I say that because you're more than welcome and invited to study these passages on your own, right? When you think about predestination, God choosing, when you think about persevering to the end or God holding on to you, Ephesians 1 is crucial, and Romans chapter 8 is also very crucial for your understanding. Romans 8, 28, many of you may know that. Primarily because of the, it's it's a true good verse, because of the hope that we have as Christians that no matter what happens, God is working out all things for the good of those who love him. But I want to focus on the second part of that verse, to verse 30 in particular. So basically, those who love God, so today, if you love God, if you're a Christian, if you love God, this is speaking about you. Those who love God have been called according to His purpose. Right? This is the end of verse 28. Those who love God have been called according to God's purpose. Verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. This is what's known as the golden chain in Scripture, as theologians oftentimes call it. It's a golden chain that cannot be broken. That is, if God in his sovereign will foreknew, foreordained, that you would be saved. What are the different things? It's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. All of these things are interwoven, and you can't have one without the other. If God has chosen you, you will be glorified. If you will be glorified, if you're going to heaven, that means God chose you in the eternity past. John chapter 6. Turn to John chapter 6. This is another very key text. So what do we see in Romans 8? The golden chain. If he chooses you, he's going to keep you. If he justifies you, if you become a Christian, he's going to see it that you go into heaven. A true born-again Christian, right? Now John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40, the whole chapter, but I'm highlighting verse 35 to verse 40 and also verse 44. John 6, verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, Then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. A few observations for you from that text. Verse 36, the text says that those who come to Jesus, well, actually, verse 35, sorry, those who come to Jesus will never go hungry, never be thirsty. The text does not say if you come to Jesus, you serve him, you have a connection with him for a year, well, then for a year, you're not going to go hungry. For a year, you're not going to go thirsty. And Jesus is talking spiritually, right, in, in your soul. He's not saying that. What does Jesus say? If you truly come to me, you will never go hungry. You will never be thirsty. Verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The Father has chosen some to give to Christ. Okay, that's clear based on the the plain reading. All those the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father has chosen some to give to Christ. And listen to the precise wording. Those whom the Father gives to Jesus. What does the text say? They will come to Jesus. It's not they might come to Jesus. No, they will come to Jesus. Not some of them, but all of them. All of those whom the Father gives to Jesus will come. But then, verse 37, the last phrase. It's very key in terms of God holding on to you. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. When I have them in my possession, when they are mine, I will protect them. I will hold on to them. Nothing will harm them. They will never be driven away. Verse 38. "I've I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus said this. What's the Father's will for Jesus right here in the text? Find that in verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of my Father in heaven, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. The Father's will, hear me clearly, the Father's will is for Jesus to hold on to all those who are his. The Father's will is for Jesus to raise up all of his chosen ones, at the last day, This is reiterated explicitly in verse 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. This is talking about heaven, eternal life, right at the end of time. I will raise them up at the last day. And then look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Sometimes... How many of you have heard that phrase or the pastor or maybe an evangelist says something to the effect of come to Jesus, put your trust in him. Have you ever heard that phrase before you know, somebody's preaching and encourages you to do that? That's biblical. That's clear. Jesus himself uses that language. Come to me. Right? Come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. Those go hand in hand. But notice what Jesus says here. No one can come to me Unless the Father draws them, unless the Father who sent me draws them, the only way that you can go to Jesus is if the Father first draws you. That may sound a little weird, a little somewhat controversial, but it's really not. First John 4:19: We love God because He first loved us. If you chose to become a Christian, which we all do, if you're a Christian here, right? There is free will and responsibility involved. If you've chosen to follow Jesus, praise the Lord. But you have to understand, first and foremostly, God took the first step. He took the first initiative to draw you to himself. We can only love God because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. And then the second part of verse 44. I will raise them up at the last day. You see how interwoven these two are, right? God chooses you. He draws you. He keeps you, He holds on to you, and and protects you until the end of time. With all of that, practicalities. If God chooses us out of His own will, if God keeps us by His power, what does that mean for my life today? A few practicalities for you and then we're done. Number one, God reveals this truth to you so that you might praise Him more. God reveals this truth to you that you might praise him more. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. You know, sometimes theologians, and also newsflash, everybody in here is a theologian. What is a theologian? It's somebody who thinks, studies, ponders theology. Who is God? If you've ever thought about who is God, you're a theologian. The question is, are you a good one or not? It doesn't mean you have to go to seminary and all that kind of stuff. Every Christian is a theologian. Everybody has thoughts about God. Are your thoughts biblical? Are they good? Are they sound? God speaks this truth to us. Not so that we can merely have a fun, intellectual, stimulating exercise and think about eternity past, eternity present. As we try to reconcile sovereignty and free will, how those pieces fit together, that's not why God gave us, revealed this truth to us in the first place. He did it that we might praise him. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be. That's how Paul opens up here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, verse 6, he interjects. As he's talking about all this grace, all this choosing, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, for the praise of his glory. And then, verse 14, he concludes this whole section by saying, to the praise of his glory. This doctrine fuels praise. That's what it ought to do. In your own life. As one pastor said, we cannot fully extol God and his grace if we refuse to acknowledge his acts of election and predestination. Number two, this doctrine keeps you from boasting. This was in the Baptist faith and message as we read it. The the Baptist faith and message said, It excludes boasting and promotes humility. That's very true. And I think so many of us, so many of you maybe, and so many Christians in general, and non-Christians for that matter, so many people resist this doctrine, this truth, this clear teaching in Scripture, I think because of the inherent pride that people have. Really think about it. If what I'm saying makes you uncomfortable in terms of God choosing you and it's not based on your, your merit, your effort, or God looking into the future, why do you resist that? Maybe it's because if you acknowledged it's true, you'd have to give up control. You'd have to say, Lord, ultimately I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the one in charge of my life. You are. And humans hate doing that. We hate doing that. We hate acknowledging God, you're in charge, and we hate submitting to the one in charge. I think that's why so many people have trouble with this doctrine, at least on the surface. But conversely, The more you and I study this, the more you and I delight in this, understand it, I think the more humble we will be because it cultivates humility. It helps us keep from boasting. It helps us to think, you know what, Lord, I'm a Christian because I chose to be Christian. And it's all because I'm strong, I'm wise enough, I'm powerful enough, I'm smart enough. I'm not foolish like those other people. I'm a Christian, and right? That's very boastful as opposed to, Lord, thank you for opening my eyes. Thank you for drawing me to yourself. Thank you for revealing your word to me. Apart from you, I would have never seen this truth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you've done in my life. Cultivate humility. Number three. Number three and four are kind of related. This does not negate your responsibility in your walk with God. Okay? This truth does not negate your responsibility in your walk with God. Because if God sovereignly chose you, if you're a Christian now, and if God is going to keep you until the end of time, you could maybe say, All Right, well then I can just coast then. I can just chill throughout the rest of life. If what I do doesn't have any bearing upon my destination, I'm just going to have a fun, easy life now. Far from it. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to go in depth here. But Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to chosen Christians who have been called out by God. Peter doesn't say, God has given you great promises. He's given you precious, powerful promises. And because of that, you can just coast. Peter says in verse 11, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling an election. To those of you who are chosen, those of you who are true Christians, make every effort to confirm your calling an election. What does that mean? The prior verses explain. What does that mean? Live a good life. Grow in the knowledge of God. Grow in the doctrines of the Bible. Practice self-control. Actively persevere through hardship. Cultivate godliness by putting sin to death. Live a genuine life of love. That's what it means to make your election sure. Number four, and finally, when it comes to evangelism. Right? Easy, and I think semi-fair Initial objection or response to this doctrine. If God has chosen all those whom he's going to save, and if it's going to happen, well then why do I, Why should I worry? Why, should, why, do, why am I here Jimmy D. Temple preaching and, and doing the gospel work if it's just going to happen anyways without my help, if God is sovereign? Simple answer. God has ordained the end, and God has ordained the means to the end. Acts 13, verse 48 and 49. The last last text. Paul and Barnabas, they were speaking God's word to large crowds. Listen to what the text says in Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Did you catch that? It's sovereignty and responsibility fused together. God's sovereignty, like what what does the text say? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. But how did they come to believe? Through the preaching of the word. Through the spreading of the word. Through the calling of Paul and Barnabas and others, spreading the word. So what does that mean for you and I? The reality is we don't know those whom God has chosen. Right? We don't know who's who and who's what. And we're not necessarily supposed to. What you and I are called to do is pray for all lost people. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're called to make disciples of all nations. Matthew chapter 28. We're called to preach the gospel to all creation. Mark chapter 16. God chooses those whom he loves. He will save those whom he has chosen. Our role is to be his hands and feet to spread the message. So again, to be clear, Yes, human beings have free will. Okay? Human beings have responsibility. Human beings do actively make a choice. Yes, I want to follow Jesus. But I tell you, in 2,000 years of, hist- of Christian history, theologians have not figured out how to precisely pick that apart, how sovereignty and free will go hand in hand. Right? It's something we continually do every single day. But what I'm here to tell you this morning are the truer of tr- clear truths of Scripture And it's simply this, and I'm done. He chose you, he'll keep you. God chose you, he'll keep you. And that should cause praise inside of us. Let's pray and we'll close with the doxology.